Hello and welcome. My name is Sharon Carty and I'm an opera singer, a mezzo-soprano, but more on that in part two. And I'm an artistic partner with Irish National Opera. You're listening to part one of a two-part podcast on the different voice types that you'll hear in an opera performance. In today's podcast, my guest is Brenda Hurley. Brenda is an Irish pianist and vocal coach whose career has taken her all over the world to work with incredible singers and conductors. She's currently director of the International Opera Studio at Zurich Opera House, but will soon take up her new position as head of opera at London's Royal Academy of Music. So if you don't know your tenors from your baritones or your sopranos from your mezzo-sopranos, you're in the right place. A person's voice is as unique to them as their thumbprint. No two are identical. Before the advent of smartphones, we would easily recognise the voice of someone we know on the phone after a split second. That's just how closely associated it is with our identity. The human voice has evolved as a highly sophisticated instrument of communication, capable linguistically on the one hand of manipulating the flow of air over our vocal cords and out of our mouths into any one of over a hundred different languages, or artistically on the other hand of being used to sustain that flow of air in and out of our lungs into a steady stream and manipulating the frequency and amplitude of that air to give us the most fundamental and arguably multifaceted instrument we have, the singing voice. The act of singing is one which accompanies most parts of human life, regardless of geography, language or culture. The human voice is the one instrument which the vast majority of us possess, and it doesn't cost us a penny. We use it individually or collectively to express the full gamut of human emotions, be it 50,000 people chanting a football anthem in a stadium, a mum singing a lullaby to send her child to sleep, drinking songs in the pub or a lament to mourn the loss of a loved one. The list can go on and on. At the most highly stylized and sophisticated end of the scale of what the human voice can do is that for which opera singers are trained, to fill a large theater or auditorium and be heard over a large orchestra, all without the aid of a microphone. This isn't generally something which comes naturally. There are, as always, exceptions to the rule, but usually it takes many years of training to achieve. One of the most immediately noticeable things that separates a classical singer from someone without this training is this ability to project over and through an orchestra and fill a space with just their voice. But how do they do that? If we think for a moment about a musical instrument, let's take a cello, for example. The body of the cello is fixed and stable, with the strings placed to take optimum advantage of the resonant space inside the hollow body of the instrument. The principles of physics are clear to observe. A string of a certain length and density vibrates, causing the air around it to vibrate, and this is amplified by the construction of the instrument. And the cellist's job is to learn how to use the bow to cause the string to vibrate, and the other hand to shorten or lengthen the string, thereby giving higher or lower notes. With opera singers, the setup is a little bit more meta. The singer is the instrument, a living, breathing, thinking, feeling musical instrument. During their training, a classical singer will learn how to use their body to support the column of air that passes over the vocal cords without putting undue strain on the throat muscles themselves. 
many people think that the voice is all about the vocal cords, but in fact it's imperative that the whole body is involved. This process takes time. The best comparison I can think of is with elite sport. A person can have an aptitude and the right physical makeup to be an Olympic level middle distance runner, but unless he trains for several years, he won't build up the safe running technique and stamina which would prevent him from getting injured or burned out in a highly competitive and high stress profession. In fact, as a former PE teacher, I see many parallels between the worlds of sports and classical music. Both disciplines require that individuals spend countless hours doing exercises alone to hone their technique, then coming together to either rehearse, as might be the case in an orchestra, or train, as might be the case with the soccer team. And then when it comes to performance time in front of large crowds, exactly the same psychological issues arise in terms of dealing with things like adrenaline release and flight or fight. In my chat with Brenda, she agreed about the sports analogy. I would compare it to uh, somebody who works in sports. If you want to, if you want to get to the Olympics, it's not it's not enough that you're able to run a hundred meters very fast. You have to do the training. Uh, a lot of it is about stamina, of course, and of course, there are many many psychological factors involved as well because it's a very tough profession, like any any artistic profession. Much like athletes on the sports field who come in all sorts of physical makeups, be it a swimmer, shot putter, marathon runners, basketball players. Singers also come in all sorts of various different physical makeups, and all of these things go towards creating the unique tapestry that gives them their voice. Gender, obviously, would be a significant factor in what the voice sounds like, but things like how long your vocal cords are, the shape of your nasopharyngeal cavity, as well as the unique striations in the muscles of the throat, can all contribute to the individual quality and timbre of a person's unique voice. It's also interesting to bear in mind that singers are constantly dealing with an instrument which can change and develop with training and practice, but also which is susceptible to things like hormonal changes and illness. But before we delve any further into the training that an opera singer undertakes, let's talk a little bit about the different types of voice that you might hear on an operatic stage. There are several categories of voice type, depending on whether it's a male voice or a female voice and how high or how low it is. Let's start with the basses and work our way up. Ein Mensch zu sein, ein Mensch. 
The names of the various voice types come, in fact, from vocal polyphony, from a time well before opera as we know it existed. The names initially reflected the function of the voice relative to those around it, so it makes sense to start at the foundation, as it were, with the bass. It's clear enough that the word bass, from the late Middle English for low, would be the lowest voice type. The lowest of all bass voice types is the impressive basso profondo, or profound bass, which can delve to a depth below the C two octaves below middle C, and is usually found in Russian Orthodox choral music. Here's a listening tip. If you want to experience bassi profondi in this setting, have a listen to the Rachmaninoff Vespers. But I digress. Back to opera. The excerpt we heard just now was the voice of Lukas Jakobski singing In Diesen Heiligen Hallen from Mozart's Magic Flute, sung by the character of Sarastro, powerful high priest to the sun who has kidnapped the daughter of the Queen of the Night. Historically, the bass voice was regularly used to give voice to kings, priests and wise old men due to the commanding presence and gravitas associated with this deep, low sound. Another notable role for bass for an opera newbie to look out for is the commendatore in Mozart's Don Giovanni. The character, and here's a spoiler alert, gets murdered by Don Giovanni at the beginning of the opera but we later hear his deep voice calling the eponymous villain into hell itself from beyond the grave. It doesn't get much lower than that. What else does an opera singer need apart from having an excellent singing voice? I spoke with Brenda Hurley and she told me about some of the other skills that an opera singer needs in order to do their job. What we haven't mentioned yet is actually the the actual music. I mean, opera is words, but it's also music and, well, words and language, but it's music and... A singer, I mean, having a good voice, probably we presume a person is musical. Um, but that doesn't mean to be musical is also to be a good musician. And a good musician takes, that takes years of training. I mean, um, I would, you know, if a singer starting off has, has, has learned another instrument, for example, the piano being the most obvious one, it's a huge advantage because it means you can teach yourself your, your, your music on your own without having to go to a coach and even pay lots of money. But the other thing is um, many, many singers have sung in choirs, you know, as children, maybe a church choir or, or whatever, a school choir. Um, that gives you the experience of having sung in a group. So you're not, because you're not always going to sing the top line unless you're the top soprano, the high soprano. Um, you need to learn how to sing in an ensemble with other people. You also you need to learn how to memorize your music, how to how to learn maybe sometimes very difficult music if it's 20th century or 21st century music or even earlier music. So being a, a top class musician is probably essential to making it. It's it's not any more okay to be kind of half prepared because normally when you do an, when you prepare an opera, you spend whatever amount of time before the first day of rehearsal preparing if it could be up to a year depending on the difficulty it depends depends on the size of the role i mean if it's a small role it wouldn't take so long and on the first day normally you you go to what's called an ensemble rehearsal meaning you sit with the whole cast in a room with a conductor 
and the conductor will work through the whole piece and he will expect you to have that memorized and to know what you're doing. So that's probably number one. That's really, really important is is musicianship and musical preparation. Moving up the register a little to the other low male voices, we have the baritone and bass baritone. The word baritone itself dates from the early 17th century from Italian baritono, which comes originally from the Greek barutonos from baros, heavy, and tonos, tone. This is one of the classifications of voice that also developed a little bit later during the advent of opera. Baritones generally have enjoyed being typecast in some of the more psychologically rich roles, as well as the romantic leads. Even if you might not have realised it, many of you will be familiar with Figaro, the cheerful hero in Rossini's Barber of Seville. This type of gregarious role is quite typical for the lyric baritone, with the more dramatic baritones enjoying hyper-masculine roles such as Escamillo, the handsome Toreador in Carmen, or Rodrigo, the good friend of Don Carlo in Verdi's opera of the same name. Perhaps more interesting though for the baritone voice is the role of the villain in many of the grand Italian operas. When Verdi set Shakespeare's Otello to music in the late 1800s, his choice to embody the voice for Iago, the villain who vows, I'll pour this pestilence in his ear of his commander Otello, was a baritone, as was the case for the evil character of Scarpia in Puccini's much-loved opera Tosca. The allure of the baritone voice is something which is widely documented. There's even a website called Barry Hunks dedicated to the hunky baritones out there. But how important is appearance on stage? I asked Brenda for her thoughts. Um, Now, the next thing is something that's talked about a lot is kind of body image. I I would put it in a different way. I would say it's important for a singer, because you're on stage, an opera singer, to be um, body aware and to be healthy and to be fit. If you're not fit and you have to sing something something for example with coloratura this is just an example you you sing something which has a lot of runs and normally when you're rehearsing say with me as a coach 
you're standing and singing with the music in front of you. Uh, and suddenly you go into the rehearsal room and the, and the director says, I'd like you to run from here to there because you're running to say hello to somebody or whatever. And you realize you're out of breath because you, you had it all figured out and suddenly you're, you're you know, sprinting across the stage. Um, that, that's just one example. But you, you know, I would, people go to gyms a lot these days, you know, in, in, in our studio in Zurich. Most of the members would be, most of the singers would be members of a gym. Uh, but you don't have to do that, you know. I think you go running, don't you, Sharon? You know, I think it's important to be fit. About the, the, there's, there's the topic of um, do, do singers need, need to be kind of skinny? I, I don't think so. Um, but, but I think how, how you present yourself is important because you're born with the body you have. Um, if, if, for example, you're, you're, let's put it this way, you're slightly well built. So yes, people will be all, all sorts of shapes and sizes, but they are expected to be able to perform you know, physically in the way that's, that, that the director requires. And, and yeah, it's all open. It's, it's all open and up for grabs. We've been speaking about how singers can have differing physical characteristics, but let's go back to the characteristics of the voice in a little bit more detail and talk now about the concept of fach. The fach system is something which informs quite a lot of casting decisions in opera houses. And I spoke to Brenda about what that all means. Fach means com compartment, and it's a way of categorizing the voice. So, so, and the reason for that, just, just why, why particularly in Germany, um, in, in German houses still today, you would have, every house would have what they call an ensemble. So it's like, it's like in a way, a civil service job. You can go to the employment agency and sign on to be a mezzo in any German house, and then they let you know when there's a vacancy. And the reason then you have the Fach system is like, so which category of mezzo do, do, are they looking for? And in a, very, in a very kind of rough way, you'd say it's like a, a lighter voice or a heavier voice. And so if you have the, the basic voice types, soprano, mezzo, alto, countertenor, tenor, baritone, bass baritone, and bass, Within each of those, there would be like a subdivision. And for an opera house, then, they would be looking particularly for one of those subdivisions for their ensemble for the following year. And they will hold auditions for that position. So there wouldn't be much point in you going for the job unless it was unless you fitted that subdivision. It's very simple. And that system continues to today. Um, for other countries, um, it may not be so strict that, that you have to be within a fach type, but people would still want to know what kind of soprano, what kind of mezzo, whatever, what kind are you, so that they know, they know where to place you. And each one of these subdivisions has their own repertoire. And uh, it's interesting, like, wh why would you have that? different subdivision and somebody else wouldn't and it's for all sorts of reasons um i have a theory about about it being from people who come from different countries it has to do with the language that you speak and if you for example huge generalization but in in korea the, a lot of the sopranos are a lot of the girls are sopranos because their speaking voice is high um the same in mexico they have a lot of sopranos and tenors 
uh, in Russia they have a lot of basses because the voice is placed very differently. And I, I can actually tell, I, I, I run a studio with about, on average, every year 14 different uh, nations in the studio. And uh, I can hear, I can usually hear from which language group they come from. Brenda explaining there how the ensemble system works. But does a singer stay the same voice type or fach for their whole career? It depends. Sometimes, as the voice develops with training, it can get higher or lower or heavier. Quite often after pregnancy, a female singer's voice can change quite dramatically. Yes, that's interesting. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but people do change. That's the biggest change, to actually change your voice type, not your fach. The fach is a different thing. But to go from soprano or mezzo, mezzo to soprano or vice versa, Yes, I think that's like that is a huge change and a huge psychological change because you think of yourself as a mezzo for your whole life or your whole you know studying and working life so far. Suddenly you're a soprano and you have to, you have a very different mindset because of the roles. It does depend on the weight of your voice. I mean, it depends what type of soprano, by the way. I would I don't know very many people who have gone into being a dramatic soprano. I have to say, and that would be a very a very very big change if you go into being a, a lyric soprano maybe it's different sometimes i mean baritones have sometimes become a tenor and that's a big that's a very big change because tenors have a lot to, you know they have to have a very good top and for a baritone to 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 have that easy top for any tenor to have an easy top is is not easy but for a baritone so it's to find that is also a big challenge i mean otherwise it wouldn't change but it's not that easy and i think it's it's psychologically it's it's psychologically diff- difficult because of the technique but it's also psychologically diff- difficult because you are suddenly doing maybe different types of roles Here's an example of a voice changing. Many of you may know our very own Gavin Ring, who we just heard as the baritone, the barber of Seville. Gavin has recently made the vocal transition to becoming a tenor, and here's what he sounds like now. Gavin wowing the audience there as a tenor with Dein ist mein ganzes Herz, or My Whole Heart is Yours, from the operetta Das Land des Lächelns, or The Land of Smiles, by Franz Lehár. When we hear the word tenor, many of us will think of the great Luciano Pavarotti. His was one of the most famous of all tenor voices, arguably of all voices, and with very good reason. His clear, easy technique allowed him to sing all of the difficult roles in his fach with apparent ease and panache. Here he is as a young man singing an excerpt from one of his signature roles, that of the callous duke in Verdi's Rigoletto. 
He was, of course, as much beloved for his personality and humour as he was for his singing, as this clip shows. You want the most embarrassing? <laughs> most embarrassing. It was, the opera was Tosca in Paris, same thing. Same moment, same, same period. And a new production, very, very strange production. In the, in the, in the room of Scarpia, there is no chair. There is just chair when I am coming in, they bring a chair. When Tosca is coming in, they bring a chair for her, but no chair. Then during the rehearsal, I see the chair is for me. <laughs> I give a look to the chair. Beautiful model, you know. Very fragile. And I say to the stage director quietly, I don't want to be here from the other colleague, of course. I say, listen, if I'm going to sit in that chair, I'm going to break it. <laughs> and he says, no, Monsieur Pavarotti. No, 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 no. We, we will reinforce with iron. <laughs> they put iron on the bottom. It's, it's true, it's not invented. They put iron all over on the bottom, and then during the other year, so I try, I stay, just on the leg like that. Okay. Uh, when Cavaradossi come in after the torture, you know, then he should really pop, 
Isten. <laughs> the night of the performance, we have a lady to make her debut. In making her debut, she doesn't know very well the position. She is a great actress. All the rehearsals we, we did before, she put their, her hand on the top of my knee and I caress her. And we say, Tosca Mario, did you speak? No, I did not speak. Oh yes, son of a bitch, you did speak. <laughs> that night, that night, the music fired her and instead to put the head here, she sit with me on the floor. <laughs> They are still looking for the chair. <laughs> Closer to home, our own John McCormack was one of our most celebrated tenor voices. James Joyce was a tenor prize winner at the Feshkill, and I always think of the brilliant newspaper headline when the decision was made to put his image on the £10 note. It read, Portrait of the Artist as a Tenor of Note. I mentioned earlier that many of the modern names we have for the voices that we hear on the opera stage actually come from much earlier choral singing, and our tenor voice is an excellent case in point. I quote here from Tenor, History of a Voice, by John Potter. The specialist singer of the lower lines later became known as the tenorista, a singer with a technique or special aptitude for holding the longer tenor lines on which the piece was constructed. The lines themselves tend to be fairly narrow in range, but sustaining the same note often for a page or more requires precise tuning and an ability to produce a consistent vowel sound, providing a rock-like foundation for the upper part. These lines may have been sung by a solo singer or on special occasions by two or three singers. This is the first time we encounter the word tenor to refer to a particular vocal line. It comes from the Latin tenere, meaning to hold, and in classical Latin, this meant literally holding on to something. It first appears in music to mean holding pitch, and this is presumably why the term tenorista was applied to those singers who held the long chant lines. Listen here to Widerund Omnes. This work is by Periton the Great, a European composer who lived in the late 12th and early 13th centuries. This piece is the first known vocal piece in four parts and there's no bass line. The tenor voice has the lowest line and here you can hear the tenor part holding long notes against the more ornate upper parts.
as is the case with the other vocal categories, we have many different types of tenor on the operatic stage. One of the earliest is Monteverdi's Orfeo, requiring a lyrical voice capable of delivering florid as well as sustained singing with a beauty of tone appropriate to a character who could charm the very rocks and trees with his singing. In many of the romantic and dramatic operatic works, the tenor is the romantic lead. Rossini, Verdi, Wagner all exploited the power and charisma of the tenor voice. Benjamin Britten wrote many roles for his partner, Peter Pears, who embodied the sound that we now know as the English tenor. We've just heard John Elway singing Monteverdi's tenor, Orfeo. And here he is as a boy alto, singing with tenor Peter Pears, with Benjamin Britten at the piano. Make 
Other facts for the tenor voice include the German Heldentenor, or literally heroic tenor, a voice type which is called for in Wagner's epic operas. Here is Lars Cleveman singing the role of Tristan in Wide Open Opera's 2012 groundbreaking production of Tristan und Isolde. And we also have the buffo or comedy tenor, often portraying characters in travesty, such as a maid or a nurse, to comic effect. Or sometimes, if it's the case that the witch in Hansel and Gretel is sung, instead of a mezzo-soprano, by a tenor, this would be by a buffo tenor. There is one voice type that nobody, well not nobody, not many people want to be, only one. Um, it's, it's the character tenor, the, 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 the spiel tenor. I'm not saying nobody wants to be it, but it's, it's, it's somehow seen as, oh, well, I didn't really make it, so I became a, became a character tenor. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about there's a role in, in, um, in, the, in Fioran called Pedrillo, and then the other tenor role, the, the lead role, is called Belmonte. And, you know, the Pedrillo will probably want to have done Belmonte instead. It's kind of... A, it's an amazing thing to be a good character tenor. Very famous Irish character tenor from Cork called Frank Edgerton. And he worked for years and years in the ensemble of Covent Garden. I met him um, way back in Glyndebourne. I was doing... Um, 
uh, was it Capriccio, Capriccio by Strauss, and he had um, Monsieur Taupe at the end of that, and he was amazing, and he just did character, he was the character tenor of Covent Garden for about 35 years, I think, Francis Edgerton. And mm. I think, you know, I've, I've, it's like one of those conversations I, I have sometimes with a tenor who, who won't maybe do the lead role, you know, whether it's light like Mozart or whether it's, you know, Verdi, you know, Rigoletto or whatever, or, or Nemorino. I, I don't hear that in his voice. Maybe the voice has an edge. Character tenors tend to have an edge in their voice and they're good at Monostatos, they're good at Pedrillo, they're good at Beppe in Pagliacci, these kind of things. And to say to them, look, this could be your money earner. Um, and I think if when people agree and, and go for that and they look the type as well, if, I, if there is such a thing, but they do, um, that is amazing. And, and there are many fantastic countertenders who, who are very, very grateful to have, have this career. But it's the only one where I, I feel sometimes resistance. I mean, the thing, the thing about that with, with, the, with this tenor, you know, character tenor, is that like a, a lyric tenor will hopefully develop, you know, who sings Mozart will hopefully develop into a lyric tenor who sings Verdi. But the character tenor type usually does not develop into, maybe they could sing Calaf. I don't know, though. Calaf is like this big role in Turandot. Why I say that is like it needs weight in the voice. But... I'm not saying it doesn't have to be beautiful, but it's it's about sometimes the beauty of sound as well, and that's why I think there's a bit of resistance. And yet you can have a beautiful sounding character tenor. Don't get me wrong, but yes, it's very interesting that normally the, normally things happen in a very organic and and natural way, which is great, of course. And that brings us naturally and organically to the end of part one of this two-part podcast on operatic voices. Tune in to part two to learn all about the higher voices. You've been listening to an Irish National Opera podcast produced in partnership with DLR Libraries, researched and presented by me, Sharon Carty, with editing and mixing by Leisha O'Brien. If you're interested in the music you heard in this episode, you can find a full list of all the performances and recordings featured on irishnationalopera.ie. Special thanks to the artists and arts organisations featured for giving us permission to use their audio recordings in this episode.